This is David Mashi, Senior Managing Editor of Discourse, a new online journal of politics, economics, and culture, published by the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. In this seventh installment of our series on liberalism, Ben Klutze, the Director of Academic Outreach at the Mercatus Center, sits down with Roger Berkowitz to discuss the impact that democratic conversations, elite technocratic prejudices, and mass loneliness have on pluralism and liberalism. Dr. Berkowitz is the founder and academic director of the Hannah Arendt Center for Politics and Humanities and professor of politics, philosophy, and human rights at Bard College. He specializes in law, political theory, and European philosophy. The audio, as well as the transcript of this conversation between Putzi and Berkowitz, has been slightly edited for clarity. Today we have Professor Roger Berkowitz. He's a professor of politics, philosophy, and human rights at Bard College, founder and academic director of the Anna Arendt Center for Politics and Humanities. He's the winner of the 2019 Anna Arendt Prize for Political Thought, given by the Heinrich Boll Foundation in Bremen, Germany. He is the author of numerous books and articles. He writes and speaks regularly on democracy, free speech, law, and philosophy. Thank you very much, Professor Berkowitz, for joining us today. It's a pleasure, Ben. Today, our conversation will focus on pluralism and its role in a liberal society. So we'll just delve right in. How do you define pluralism? When we say we're in a pluralistic society, what does that mean? Are we just talking about you know, America as a, as a melting pot? It's a good question. Pluralism for me is not quite the same as a melting pot or diversity you know, diversity is an interesting value. You know, biodiversity is a value. And there's a certain claim that, that people make that simply being different, being diverse is good. And yet one of the problems with diversity is, well, every time we get to another diversity, then, then there's micro diversities, another micro diversity. So, you know, you're a Jew, but are you an Orthodox Jew or Reformed Jew or, or a conservative Jew? Are you, cons- are you, are you a, you're a liberal, but are you an economic liberal or a, or a or free speech liberal? And so, you know, if we value diversity, which is a, an important value, it's not entirely clear where it ends. And it seems like, why is it that we always value, you know, ever more difference and difference and difference? And what's whatever happened to community or, or solidarity or commonality? And so diversity is, is, I think, an important value, but it's, it's, it's a little different from what I mean by plurality or what Hannah Arendt would mean, I think, by plurality. Plurality is sort of the backbone of what it means to be human insofar as to be human means to live a public and political life. Hannah Arendt defines plurality. She says that human plurality right, is the basic condition of both action and speech. And that it has the twofold characteristic of equality and distinction. And what she means by that is that we are all equal, which means that we can understand each other. You know, I mean, even if I'm from another country and we speak a different language, we can we can figure out ways to understand each other. And we can also understand those ancestors who came before us and, and those who will our progeny who will come after us. And that's the basic equality that she she sees as bound up in human plurality. And yet part of plurality is also that we are distinct and that we, in the ways we appear to others as we act and speak, we are unique. 
Uh, not merely, she says, through our natural, racial, religious, and physical otherness. And this is so not just in the way we appear or or our who we are in sort of some religious sense, but in our opinions. And our opinions change. Each one of us has distinct opinions. And so plurality is this mix of our uniqueness and distinctness on the one hand and our equality on the other. And thus plurality is the space where people who are equal and distinct come together and talk, come together and try and figure out what we share and what we don't share and how we can live together amidst what we share and don't share. So plurality is a political principle. It's different from diversity, which is more of a, I value difference. And, and plurality is a valuing of difference, but also equality and thus the political effort to negotiate both our equalities and our differences. So that's how I, I understand plurality. I should say, I add, plurality is a dangerous thing because it announces that there are real and meaningful differences amongst us, right? Whereas diversity can be superficial, plurality means we really do disagree about things, things that people will kill each other for, right? My God versus your God, you know, equality versus inequality. And when we live amongst plurality, we can threaten each other. And thus politics founded upon this dangerous plurality is a kind of, well, itself is dangerous because politics means that we embrace this danger. We embrace our willingness to confront each other as equal and different, equal and distinct, and recognize our plurality. And, and this is the source of really a, an ancient prejudice against politics that starts with Plato. It starts with Plato saying, we want the philosopher king to tell us what's right and true. We don't want the multitude, the doxa, the people, the hoi polloi. We don't want them getting into it because that's dangerous and it can lead to the death of Socrates, right? We want some people in charge, some experts, the philosophers, the intellectuals, the experts. And so plurality for me also, and I'll just end here with this first question of yours, is very much against an overestimation of expertise and truth. The premise of a plural world is one in which there are an infinite number of opinions. And while some may be preferable, and I will prefer others and you'll prefer others, none of them are true. And there's no philosopher or expert or scientist who's going to tell us which one is true. I really like the we are equal yet distinct phrasing. I think it really highlights the, the point that you're, you're making. I want to come back to the, the discussion on experts. Uh, but before we move on, a previous guest, Professor Danielle Allen, in our conversation, made a distinction on, on this topic here between wholeness and oneness. You know, oneness referencing the e pluribus unum concept, you know, when talking about a pluralistic society. And she mentioned that we shouldn't seek a monolithic oneness in society, but incorporate that many different cultures that work together. Do you or Anna Arendt have any thoughts on looking at it from, from this angle? I fundamentally agree with Danielle that to engage freely 
in a plural world, we have to see ourselves in some way as part of a wholeness, right? And yet we have to respect meaningful differences. This does, if we want to go there, we can get into a conversation about federalism, right? Which for our end, one of the, the great principles of freedom that was discovered largely by, by Montesquieu and by the United States is the principle of federalism, that you not only have to divide power through the branches of government, you know, the executive, judiciary, and, and legislative, but you have to disperse power throughout society into multiple different power sources, states, counties, nonprofits, non-governmental institutions. Since laws can't protect freedom, only power can protect freedom from RN's point of view. You need as many different power sources in society as possible to protect freedom. And so you don't want an unum, you don't want a one, you want a multiple. You want a wholeness, but it comes out of a respect for a multiple group of people, many groups of people, many institutions, many power sources, each pursuing their vision of the good life. And so that's a vision I share quite strongly. I'd love for you to reflect a bit on where we are as a society on pluralism, you know, the concept of being equal yet distinct. I saw you, you agree with Martin Gurry's thesis that the public is revolting against the elites. You highlight this in a chapter in the book, The Emergence of Illiberalism, and your chapter is titled The Failing Technocratic Prejudice and the Challenge to Liberal Democracy. And you highlight that there are four prejudices that elites have about democracy. How do these prejudices contribute to our current problems? Yeah, thank you. Yeah, no, this was a, a piece I originally gave as a speech at one of our RN Center conferences called The Crises of Democracy. I think these prejudices and, and the four prejudices I think I talked about in that essay were that democracy is liberal, right? But of course, democracy is not liberal in any necessary way. I mean, the whole point of democracy is it can be tyrannical and it can be repressive and it can be quite prejudiced. I mean, that's why we have, const that's why we don't have a democracy. It's why the founders of this country didn't want a democracy. They created a Republican form of government and it's called a constitutional or limited democracy with many aristocratic elements, by the way, including the electoral college and, and others, you know, so I don't, I mean, the idea that democracy, we talk about liberal democracy today, it already shows one of the prejudices, which is that those people who don't believe democracy should be liberal are thought to be wrong. And those people are not anti-democratic. They're actually often quite democratic. They're just not liberal. So that's one prejudice of liberal democracy. Another is that it's individualist. I mentioned before the idea of the value of cosmopolitanism. And yet most democracies have been quite nationalist. And as my friend Chantal Mouffe would write, you know, the left has made a huge mistake in, in abandoning speaking about we. People, you know, need identities, especially at a time in the world when the traditional markers of identity, many of them religion, family, traditions, have really weakened. You know, the idea that we can all live as sort of cosmopolitan individuals is sort of a fantasy. I happen to agree with Chantal Mouffe on this and others as well. People need to belong to something. And so this sort of liberal democratic belief that we're all 
you know, sort of these free floating intellectuals or individuals, and we're part of a world community, but not, we shouldn't think of ourselves as American or French or German or, or Chinese or Russian, I think really misunderstands deep human needs. And it's a prejudice. And we see those people who then are nationalist as prejudiced, whereas we have our own prejudice in favor of cosmopolitanism. The third I talked about was moralizing our opponents as evil. You know, I think that's fairly obvious right now. I mean, we, we just increasingly see people disagree with us, not as people disagree with us, but as wrong and even bad people. And then um, that we prefer security over freedom, which is actually my friend Uday Mehta has made this a thesis of his for 20 years in writing about Gandhi and Mill and Burke. But he argues that the core of liberalism, for Uday Mehta, the core of liberalism is that we privilege security over freedom, that we, we are so afraid of nasty British in short freedom that we give up freedom in the name of, of keeping order and security and increasingly put that responsibility on elites and experts to keep everything in order. So you asked, you know, how do we reflect on our society of pluralism? I think I reflect on it this way is that depending on how you tell the story, we could start the story in the 1600s. We could start the story in the 1900s. We could start the story in somewhere around 1950. Let me for now start it at 1950. So I don't bore everyone and put them to sleep, which is that after World War II, there was a deep desire to reaffirm for want of a better word, liberal democratic values. And we saw the emergence of what you might call a technocratic government across the West. John F. Kennedy in giving a speech in, in I think in 1961 or 62, you know, says that this is a new dawn, a new age, right? We, we no longer disagree about the big questions. Communism is done, you know, inequality is done, all these things. Everything that we do in our government is just a matter of technical how to make it happen. We agree on where we're going. You know, as I said in the article, one of the worst time speeches of all time presages the 60s where people really start to disagree, let alone now. And I think what you saw was suddenly all these intellectuals, college educated PhDs came into government. I mean, remember, Lyndon Johnson didn't go to college. I mean, imagine electing a president. No, forget it. Imagine electing a congressman today who doesn't have a college degree. It's almost unheard of. It's almost unthinkable. And so we have this over 50, over 70 years from the 1950s till now, the emergence of this idea that to govern, you have to be college educated. You have to speak in a certain way. You have to think in a certain way. You have to know when to raise your hand and when to shut up, when not to tweet and when to tweet. And you got this sort of prejudice of these elites. And I think people largely accepted it because the world got better. We didn't have Nazism. We didn't have Bolshevism. Economy grew, etc. And yet, when the economy starts to stagnate and when people start not earning more money and when there's a sense that things aren't getting better, we look at how these elites have governed for the last 70 years. Have schools gotten better? Hard to say they have for most people. Has healthcare gotten better? Hard to say we have for many people, right? Have race relations improved? You know, an interesting question, but you know, in a recent study by Shailen Romney Garrett and Robert Putnam, just, you know, came out and it argues, I think, very convincingly that, in fact, most of the actual material racial progress made in this country was pre-1970. And since the 1970s, is largely stagnated. Now, that's a background for maybe how we understand 
the current movement for Black Lives and why it's so important and why it's gotten so much support. But it's also a background for maybe why the way the elites have been pursuing solving these problems is not working. And maybe we need some new ideas. And so I do, and here's where Martin Gurry and I, you know, see eye to eye, and, and I, I really like Martin and his work, is that I think we, we are in the midst of an, a massive loss of credibility and authority for elites across society. There's a collision right now between various publics who feel like outsiders, be they the Trump voters, or be they the Bernie Sanders voters, or be they other people. And I'm not saying there's just two groups or one group. There's a lot of outsiders. And they're really colliding with the elites who cling to what they think they've earned. And there's a kind of mutual incomprehension going on uh, amongst those groups with the dual ideas that on the one hand, you've lost, the elites have lost authority and they're not taken, they're not listened to very much. And yet you don't yet have any one or public that has a sense of what to do or how to rule or how to govern. And so what I see is a lot of, a lot of chaos and a lot of anger and a lot of resentment. So yeah, that's where I think we're at. Interesting. So you, you seem to diagnose two essential problems. On the one hand, an elite preference for a technocratic scientism to manage society and, and mass loneliness and isolation. Could you tell us more about how mass loneliness has affected individuals and how these two problems interact with each other? I know you've written about this a little bit yourself. Mass loneliness is a technical term. There's always been loneliness, right? People have always been lonely. The argument is that loneliness used to be a fringe phenomena in our society. You know, when you were sick or when you were old or when you were in a bad state, you were lonely, but it wasn't day to day. The argument of mass loneliness is that increasingly our daily experience is one of feeling adrift, feeling out of place, feeling alone, feeling purposeless. There's just a sense that many people have without, a, you know, for many people, where'd they get purpose in their lives? Through religion. Religion is on retreat. Where do they get purpose in their lives? Through being an American, and yet it's not supposed to be good to be nationalist or be a German or whatever. God forbid, a good German nationalist, right? So these collective identities, which had given us sort of transcendental purposes, uh, are increasingly devalued or, or, or seen as ideologies. I think the main thing that drives people the main thing that mostly keeps people from going crazy are two. One is entertainment and the other is consumption. And so we've created a society based around entertainment and consumption. And that works up to a point. And yet when people are lonely and they're drowning their loneliness, their purposelessness in a kind of Netflix driven entertainment and Amazon driven consumption at some points that doesn't do everything for them. And someone comes along and says, I can make you great again, or we're going to restore our greatness, or we're going to, we're going to fight for something. And it provides a kind of hope that their lives are meaningful. I think one of the things that's most underappreciated about Hannah Arendt's work is that for her, 
what really is the absolute center of what it means to be human is to be meaningful. She says in, in her first major book, The Origins of Totalitarianism, in a very famous phrase where she's talking about human rights and she calls it the right to have rights. She says that the only real human right is not to live, not to eat. Those are not, you know, first of all, we're all going to die. So there's no right to live. And our life is not really different from the life of a cow or an ant, right? They're biological creatures. That's not what makes us human is that we live. What makes us human is that we can be, we can act and speak in public in a way that people listen to us and thus that our lives have meaning and significance. And there's a deep, deep human need to be meaningful. The opposite of meaningfulness is loneliness, purposefulness. There's no sense. And so it matters because to the extent we live in a world without these markers of meaning and thus in a world of mass loneliness, um, people are very susceptible, A, to entertainment and, and consumption, but B, to demagogic movements, any kind of movement, whether it's environmental movement or the movement for Black Lives or the Trump movement. People want to join. They want to be joiners because it gives them a sense of a purpose in their lives. In the um, chapter that I mentioned earlier, The Failing Technocratic Prejudice and the Challenge to Liberal Democracy, you also say that we have to reimagine a pluralistic politics. What do you mean by that? Can we solve this issue without undermining the ideals that we care so much about? It's a good question. I think we can, but I don't think it's, I don't think there's a silver bullet. And I don't think we're, you know, the solution means that we get somewhere and we stop. But I think there's a few things that need to happen. One is we need to talk to each other. I mean, this seems so simple. President-elect Biden has come out and said he wants to heal the country. And yet he is appointed into his cabinet almost exclusively people who are part of either the Obama administration or, or even the Bill Clinton administration before that, who've worked with him for 30 years and are almost all what we would call technocratic elites. Now, I understand that part of what he's doing is reacting to a kind of anti-competency of the Trump administration. And, and I think he's right. And he's trying to restore normalcy. And I think that's right, too. But I don't think you can just restore normalcy right now. I think normalcy means profound polarization and distrust. And uh, I don't think that polarization and distrust is one-sided. I mean, we have to remember that as just disgusting as what's going on right now with President Trump and, and hundreds of Republicans who refuse to recognize this election as legitimate, four years ago, many, many Democrats insisted that this elect that the election of Donald Trump was fraudulent and that it was fraudulent because the Russians stole the election. And this view that the Russians stole the election, which has never, ever had any factual basis, continues to be upheld by many on the left. And so, yes, true, the Democrats did not go as far and thankfully, as Trump is going now and as Republicans are going now to challenge what they saw as an unfair and unjust election. 
but there's no doubt that there is serious prejudice on both sides against accepting the other side as legitimate. My friend and one of my favorite thinkers, David Bromwich, uh, was speaking last night, actually, at a humanities forum, and he quoted a speech by William James. It's a speech James gave dedicating a monument to Robert Gould Shaw in Boston in 1887. And in that speech, James says there are two core principles of democracy and liberal democracy that need to be upheld if we're going to hold on to our values and our world. And he says they can never be too often pointed out or praised. And one of them is the habit of trained and disciplined good temper towards the opposite party when it fairly wins its innings. That strikes me as an incredibly relevant and modern need. We need to understand good baseball, good sportsmanship. And if the other party wins, let them win. If, you, if you're asking, you know, what can we do today? Or, you know, what is it that can be done? We have to learn a little bit of humility, right? We have to learn that while I think women should have the right to abortion, and I think it should be a constitutional right, to be honest. I think it, I think it is, and I think it should be, and I think it should be. So I'll take that one off the table. But people can disagree with me on it and still be good people, right? I believe in immigration. And people can disagree with me on that and still be good people. The problem then is when the country really does disagree on these questions, right? Really does. What do we do? Do we every four years when we win, we make abortion legal? And when they win, they make it illegal? And when we may win, we make immigration legal. And when they win, we make immigration illegal. Is that the way we're going to govern? And I think to some degree, two things have to happen. Two things. So I'll say what, they, what I think these two things are. One is we need to be a little bit more humble and a little bit more pluralistic. We need to be willing to let different parts of the country live differently. The United States was originally a country that was a federalist republic. The premise, the national government of the country at that time, didn't seek to impose its will on, on people very much. In fact, not at all. The whole premise of, of the country at that point uh, was to be an overarching schema for, for freedom and let different parts of the country and different communities live differently. That kind of freedom led to some things we didn't like, and rightfully so. And we fought wars for them, and we passed laws for them and constitutional amendments for them, and we've changed it a lot. And yet increasingly, we've seen, we've argued that the country has to be a single moral community, a single political moral community. And it's not clear to me that that view that the country should be a single moral political community is consistent with pluralism and freedom. Now that doesn't mean everything goes, right? You're still a constitutional republic and there are basic constitutional rights. And, you know, I think we have to argue about what those constitutional rights are and, and have them. But at some point we have to let more plurality and more difference emerge than many, at least on my side, 
the liberal cosmopolitan side are currently willing to do. So that's that's one thing that needs to happen. We need to be a little bit more humble, a little bit more willing to tolerate plurality, even when it really doesn't agree with us. The second thing I think we need to do is we need to realize that a representative democracy has largely atrophied most of our facilities and skills at self-government. Most of us have very little experience being in a room and having to argue with people we disagree with, A, and not only argue with them, come to some sort of consensus or some sort of agreement on what we're going to do. It's hard. What Mitch McConnell and Nancy Pelosi have to do right now is not easy. And yet they're being forced to do it, even though they don't want to, it seems. And that being put in a room and being forced to hammer out an agreement, even with when you don't want to, is, is at the very root of what it means to be a Democrat, small d Democrat, a participant in self-government. And we used to have that experience through town hall meetings or, or local government meetings, and, and that's gone. And to me, one of the things that's most exciting in the political universe right now is the rise of what's called citizen assemblies. Uh, I hosted a big webinar on this about a month ago, which is online. We're having a conference at the RN Center at Bard on this in at the end of April in 2021. But the idea of citizen assemblies is that you bring a randomly chosen group of citizens together. So for example, a few months ago in France, they brought 150 randomly selected French citizens together for six weeks, I think, to talk and discuss about how to deal with climate change. And these randomly selected citizens could bring in experts, could talk to people, but in the end, it was up to the citizens. And they've now put out an agenda on how to deal with climate change that looks like it may end up being embraced by the French government. I think we need to bring non-elected, non-expert, randomly selected voices into government. And I don't think just into Congress. I think we should have these citizen assemblies all over the place. So if we're going to put a sewer system in my town in Red Hook, New York, bring in 30 people and let them get together and talk to people and let them make decisions. We need to stop outsourcing our political life to elected political hacks or experts. And if we do so, not only will I think we actually make better decisions, but we will start to bring people throughout our society who don't talk to each other into the same room where they have to make a decision. Tocqueville, right? One of my favorite thinkers, Tocqueville says that the, the moral center of the American form of democracy was the jury. Why? Because the jury, he said, is where 12 randomly selected people came in and had to make a decision on life and death on justice. And they had to talk to each other. And it's that process of talking to each other where Americans developed their sense of what we share and what we hold in common and what is right and wrong. These citizen assemblies that I'm suggesting we engage are like juries for politics. Bring in random people and let them talk for a couple months, have a trial, 
But in a set of a trial, let them bring in experts, let them bring in witnesses, let them bring in people and let them come to an agreement. And it's that process that not only I think will make, make better decisions, but it will make us aware of what we share and what we don't share and thus allow us to have a, a more a rich, pluralistic, hopefully somewhat liberal democracy. That's really interesting. So it, it seems as though what I'm hearing is that pluralism is incredibly difficult to do because you have to accommodate people with different perspectives and ideas and philosophies than, than your own. And you're suggesting that there are two ways to do this. First, to exercise a lot of humility. And secondly, to develop this citizens' assemblies and see if we can incorporate more diverse perspectives and ideas in how we move the country forward. Yeah, I mean, let me just say the citizens' assemblies is one idea. I'm not trying to say it's the only idea. But it's not just about incorporating diverse perspective. It's about practicing self-government. It's about practicing how to talk and make decisions with people you disagree with and encountering them as human beings. In your acceptance speech, when you were awarded the Anna Rand Prize for political thinking, you also suggested that one way to address our current pluralism challenges is to look to the humanities. And you note that there is a tradition of, and I quote, reinterpreting old texts that are part of a broken tradition in new ways. And in talking to each other about them, we find new meanings and new stories that preserve and make a new assured world. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I'd be happy to. If politics, right, as you were just saying, and, I, and, and I've been trying to say is, is the task of finding what unites us as different people, right? I, I think it was Aristotle who says that the polis is a unity of a multitude, e pluribus unum. It's actually a translation of Aristotle, although I don't know if it's direct, but fine. The politician is the person who stands in the middle and speaks and gathers the multitude around them so that they realize what they share without giving up what is different. That's how I understand politics. Why is the humanities absolutely essential to politics? And I think it is. It's because the humanities is the study of what we share. It's the study of what we as human beings share amidst our many differences. The humanities, Arendt says in at the end of her essay, Crisis and Culture, she quotes Cicero, right? Who says, I prefer before heaven to go astray with Plato rather than hold true views with his opponents. I prefer before heaven to go astray with Plato rather than hold true views with his opponents. And she says that this quotation, this line, this insight of Cicero's is at the core of the humanities. Why? Because it says that the humanities are about what I share with my friends, those I recognize as my friends, Plato. And I'd rather recognize and be with my friends than go hold true views 
with his opponents. So the humanities, she says, is not about truth. In the humanities, we don't talk about truth. And we shouldn't. And some people do, but we shouldn't. Why not? Because what we talk about in the humanities is the beautiful. You can't argue to somebody, this painting is beautiful, right? You can't, there's no true beauty. Like art, which is about judgments of tastes. And here's, I think, one of the most insightful arguments Arendt will make. Like art, which is about judgments of taste, politics is about judgments of taste. Politics is about deciding who are our friends in the broadest way we can. And then figuring out how to live with our friends so that we respect them and they respect us, right? How do we unite with our friends who we are, whether we're Americans or New Yorkers or academics or, or whatever, how do we create a community of our friends that allows us all to be part of that community? And that is a judgment of taste. It's about how do we, you know, how do we determine, right? That this painting of the trial of Socrates is different from a piece of poop on a podium. That's a matter of taste. There's no argument we can make for it. How do we determine that the Gettysburg Address is different from tweets telling us that someone is a jerk or has, or this? That's a matter of taste. How do we determine that an argument is different from canceling somebody? How do we determine that while lies may be part of politics, repeatedly lying and denying reality is not. These are matters of taste. And what they require is that all of us, despite our differences, share some common sense, share some common standards. And that's what the humanities teaches. The humanities teaches that you can love the Aeneas and you can love Derek Walcott's Omeros, and you can love Sappho, and you can love Virginia Woolf, and you can love Plato, and you can love, yeah, I mean, the point is, the beauty of the humanities is that the texts are lovable because they're good. I can't argue to it. I can only teach you. I can only, through conversation and teaching with you, point to you and show you why certain things have a quality to them. And other things don't. And that determination of quality, which is a matter of taste, is at the heart of art and culture and is at the heart of politics. And so that's why I think the humanities is central to politics. Now, as we've moved more towards STEM, does that pose a challenge in solving some of these problems with pluralism? through doing more humanities? Are we, are we making some trade-offs here that will create a lot of challenges for us in the future? So I don't think STEM is the problem. I think STEM is great. I'm not a Luddite. I'm talking to you on Zoom. I think people should be aware of how algorithms work and how Facebook and Twitter and YouTube guide you 
to what you're going to watch and read and hear and see, and they should be able to fight back against it. And so I think it's absolutely essential that I was on a committee a number of years ago and I argued for and suggested and argued for new courses in digital literacy that we shouldn't just imagine schools teaching reading, writing, and arithmetic, but that literacy now included understanding how algorithms work and how digital literacy works. Because if you don't understand how codes and algorithms direct your life today through Amazon and Facebook and Twitter, you can't possibly be free. You can't resist. You have to know how that works. I don't claim I do, but I think young people have to learn that today. So yeah, I would like to, to, see, to see people learn that digital literacy so they can fight back. So the problem is not STEM. The problem is the humanities. I mean, I fundamentally believe that the reason the humanities are in retreat is not because people are taking STEM. It's because people don't find value in the humanities. And I think that's largely, and you know, okay, everyone who's going to get mad at me so they can, here it is. Punching bag is being wound up. Most humanities teachers and professors are doing a bad job. They're not teaching the humanities as something that is relevant and beautiful and important to people's lives. They're teaching hyper-specialized, often very technical interpretations of texts, or they're teaching texts that are, you know, are supposed to like be have political purpose and and bring in, you know, alternative views and things like that. That's not bad in the sense that I think the humanities should be decolonized in the sense that it should be opened up to all sorts of views. But I don't think it should be decolonized in the sense that only humanities texts that support a liberal cosmopolitan elitist view should be taught. So I think there's a huge debate amongst, you know, the decolonization of the curriculum debates, which all of us are now have to be involved in. And again, I'm not against it. But to me, decolonizing the curriculum means bringing in texts from people who aren't usually heard. And that can include conservatives or black conservatives. Uh, and it can include Orthodox Jews and, and religious Muslims. These are not people usually heard in, in the academy. But no one in the decolonization debates wants to bring those people in, right? They want to bring in one ideologically kind of sanctioned text. And, and that to me is why the humanities is failing because anyone who doesn't, first of all, it's not exciting. Who wants to read stuff we all agree with? Students are young and rebellious. They want to read stuff they don't like. They want to read stuff that pisses them off. I did when I was a kid and my students do too today. This idea that students are snowflakes is I think a joke. And it comes from the fact, not that students are snowflakes, but they're being taught to be snowflakes by certain faculty members and administrators. Students themselves have an innate desire for controversy. And anyone who doesn't know that and who's taught, I think is just fooling themselves. I think students love, would love a really, uh, a humanities program that brought in really challenging text that made them think and made them rethink what it means to be human and what's right and what's wrong. Now, speaking of students, you run a set of initiatives at BARD to foster discourse and conversation and, and pluralism. And these things include, you have the Plurality Forum, you have the Tough Talk Lecture Series, you have the Race and Revolution Lecture Series, you have the Dorm Room Conversations. 
Can you tell us about your, your thinking behind these initiatives to, to help people learn how to live? Yeah, I mean, we were approached a couple a while ago to, to have an instituted bard on anti-Semitism. And we were having lunch with the person who proposed it. And they said, great, you know, we're, we're, we're totally, you know, Hannah Arendt wrote a whole book on anti-Semitism. Hannah Arendt Center would love to work with and, and oversee an institute on anti-Semitism. And I said, you know, there's, there's just about to sign on the dotted line, but, you know, there's one thing you have to understand. There's going to be people at Bard who bring in people who you're not going to like. We may bring in people you're not going to like. And we expect that if they are talking about anti-Semitism or related issues, this center would co-sponsor them. And they said, oh, no, you know, our, our funders won't, won't do that. And I said, well, no deal. I mean, because, you know, Hannah Arendt wrote a book on origins of totalitarianism on anti-Semitism. And if you read the footnotes, it's filled with Nazis. And what she said is you can't study anti-Semitism and not read anti-Semites. How are you possibly going to know what an anti-Semitism is if you don't read and talk to anti-Semites? And so you're going to bring a center to study and study anti-Semitism and not talk to and not listen to anti-Semites? No go. And so we decided, you know, that we were going to, as a rule, at the Hannah Arendt Center, we have conferences every year, uh, big public conferences, and we always bring in dissenting views. It's just part of who we are. I don't like to think of it as left-right because I think dissenting views are much more complicated than left-right, but we bring in people who are going to dissent from what I consider to be the consensus, whatever the consensus is going to be on that issue. And we got into some trouble for it over time. But what I found is that the students were not with the people who were mad at us. It was faculty members and other, and especially faculty members at other colleges who were mad at us. I wrote a fair bit about it. And some students came to me and said, we want to do something. And so we started, the first thing we started was something called Tough Talks, where we bring in speakers from all different political perspectives. So we have radical anti-police anarchists and we have conservatives and we have, you know, people who are, who believe that men are all rapists. And we, you know, we, we have all sorts of different, but we bring in people who have opinions that are outside the mainstream of the campus. Now we've, we've had to over time set some criteria, right? We, we, you know, we want to bring in people who we think are, are intellectual and, and willing to have a debate and willing to talk. They have to, have to be willing to ask their questions and, you know, have a certain amount of credibility in their field. So we have the Tough Talks program. And that's been, it's a student-run program. The students pick the speakers, they invite the speakers, they introduce the speakers, and they've embraced it. They love it. Again, students love this kind of stuff. They love being controversial. And anyone who tells you students are snowflakes. I certainly not met the students I meet. We also have, we started something called a living room conversation series and then a dorm room conversation series. So living room conversations is, is not my idea. It's, there's a group called living room conversations and they're national. I don't know how, if they're still around, but they were a couple of years ago. And the idea was that you would bring six people together, three from one side of an issue and three from another side of an issue. And, you know, you'd have a, discussion. And let's say the discussion was gun control or President Trump, two that we've done. But instead of asking them to go straight at it, you ask them each a series of questions. And we modified it a little bit. The questions we ask are, who are you and what are your main values? Everyone goes through and asks answers, who am I and what are my main values? And then what do you think should 
should be done about gun control or what do you think should be done about Trump? And everyone goes through and answers that. And then third is, what is one thing that someone who you disagreed with said that surprised you and made you think? And so the six people each answer those three questions. And then we open it up to audience questions and we have these living room conversations. We then modified that for dorm rooms and students could pick a topic and we would provide pizza and food and they would have these conversations in their dorm rooms. And we would we created surveys to find people who disagreed about issues and mixed matched people up on these ideas. The plurality forum is an attempt to model disagreement and how to have a disagreeable conversation. So we bring in experts, you know, let's say one really strong expert who knows a lot about Israel-Palestine on one side, who's pro-Israel and one on the other side. And then we bring 20 students together. And these two experts over the course of a day and a half have a series of curated discussions where they talk about what they agree on and what they disagree on. And the students are able to then ask them questions. But the idea is to, to model for them how knowledgeable people who disagree can actually talk to each other and maybe not agree at the end, but at least agree on certain facts. And, and we find where they disagree, where they disagree, where they agree and disagree, but, but teach them that process. We have a new collaboration with a, a group called future worlds in, in, in the, in European union, where we're going to be bringing them in to moderate what they call structured democratic dialogues where we have 20 students from around the world. So BARD is part of the Open Society University Network, or OSUN. And we're going to be picking people. And the first one will be on decolonization of the curriculum, what I was just saying about. 20 people brought together where they're going to have to talk to each other and try and figure out what they want to do about decolonization of the curriculum through structured dialogues that helps them figure out what they think and where they agree and disagree with others and how they can come to some sort of consensus. So these are the kind of programs we're doing. We're doing them now, not only at BARD, but at BARD campuses around the world, these Osun campuses. And uh, I think it's a very exciting and important, you know, everyone talks about free speech and diversity and that, and these are great ideas. But to me, what really matters is the practice the practice of learning how to talk to people you disagree with, with the aim of not convincing them or being convinced, but coming to some sort of a, at least a minimal consensus on what we can agree to disagree on. And that's the practice that's missing. And that's what we're really aiming to, to foster and nurture. So if we hold your students, I'm sure they'll be pleased with it, but what would they say is the the thing that they've gotten out of this, the, the, the biggest value out of going through these experiences? It's a, it's a good question. I, you know, we, we have tons of interviews with our students on our website that you could, <laughs> people can watch and hear what they say. You know, I think a lot of them do feel that there's a kind of bubble and that certain ideas are off the table. There's a cancel culture I don't think it's as bad as a lot of commentators make it out to be on campuses. I think there's a lot more disagreement and dissent than I think a lot of people on the right want to say, but uh, it's there. And I think the students feel it, but what I think they feel most is not that they're being shut up. Although some of them do feel that, 
But I think what most of them feel is that they're not allowed to ask the questions that they want to ask and that they're not able to ask and they don't know how to ask and they don't know where to go to ask. And so they find these, these events hard, right? But they find them freeing and they find them empowering. And I think uh, that's the very powerful feeling for young people. Now, can we take some of these tools and uh, things that you're, you're learning on campus and apply them in, in society more broadly? Can there be some transferable skills there? Well, I, I think so. I mean, obviously, you know, Bard is a small campus. And, you know, if you, if you, if you limit it to 20 people, it's not going to change the world. I mean, I mentioned earlier these, this idea of citizen assemblies, right? Citizen assemblies are happening all over the world. In Canada, they're happening a lot. In Europe, they're happening more and more. Certain parliaments in Europe are starting to embrace the idea. And, and I'll tell you that the main argument for them has been that they make good decisions, right? You know, that the, in Ireland, they had a citizen assembly for two issues, gay rights and abortion. And on both issues, this randomly selected selection of, of Irish, often very religious citizens came out in favor of gay marriage and, and abortion rights. A lot of the argument is, oh, they make the right decisions. That's fine. But to me, what's important is that in the process of making the right decisions or the wrong decisions, people have to talk and they have to talk to people who they have to then make decisions with. That is an incredibly powerful requirement. I mean, it's one of the things I hear a lot is what I invite speakers people don't want to hear on campus. They say to me, why do you have to invite them? We can just read them. And I say, no, it's not the same. When you read someone you disagree with, and then you put it down and you say, ha, they're wrong. And here's why. And then you go on as if you've proved your point. But when you invite them to speak and then you have to ask questions and you say, you're wrong. And they say, well, no, here's why I'm not. You have to actually realize that they have arguments too, that they can come back. And so it's the same. It's, you know, it's one thing to, to talk to people you disagree with and read people's opinions or hear people's opinions you disagree with on Fox News or one of the other ones, 1NN or whatever it's called. But if you actually have to have a discussion with them and the point of the discussion is not just to yell or scream or argue, but to actually have to come to a consensus, that changes the whole rubric. I mean, you know, it's, it's very easy for Nancy Pelosi and Mitch McConnell to scream at each other in, pr in the press. But when they actually have to sit down with each other and come to a decision, they actually have to listen to each other and figure out what they're willing to accept and what not. And that's what I think is missing. And so these citizen assemblies or citizen juries or whatever you want to call them are to me a way that this, and by the way, you can televise them, right? In France, these things were televised and recorded and people can see it happening. And that's a way of building new common senses. So I'll say one thing that at the end of her, um, in a couple of, of essays and speeches she gives in the 60s, she says, she repeats a phrase, right? It's a phrase that obviously she liked. She used it in four or five different things she wrote. And she says that talking about justice and piety will make the world more just and more pious. And I think it's a, 
a lot of people would say, why? You know, that makes no sense. Why talking about justice and piety makes the world more just and pious? And her answer is that if you actually have to really talk, and we're talking about talking about it in the way I'm talking about, where you actually have to talk to people you disagree with and come to some sort of consensus, because what it will do is it will start to lay down new tracks, new common paths that we share, new stories, new tales or myths that come to be shared, right? When, we, when I'm just talking to my friends and, and the Trump people are talking to their friends and the other people are talking to their friends, we all create our own stories. They're great, but they're not common. But if I have to talk to all these people and we begin to say, where do we, okay, we disagree about immigration. We disagree about abortion. We disagree about, you know, religious freedom, but what can we agree on? Well, those things we agree on become a new foundation. It may be a minimal, humble foundation, but at least it's that beginning. And once we have that beginning, we can then start talking about the higher stuff. And hopefully over time, you know, we'll get to a more rich, common world. But uh, I do think the act of talking about justice and piety and about politics in these citizen assemblies or things like them would be an incredibly powerful public tool for plurality and democracy. It reminds me of Danielle Allen's book, uh, Talking to Strangers. And in that, she, she says that, you know, there's the habit that we have in society where we say to kids that don't talk to, talk to strangers. And obviously, it's sort of a metaphor for the experiences we're having, but we should train ourselves to do the opposite to learn to talk to strangers and to talk to one another. It seems like that's similar to what you're, you're saying. As we close here, I wanted you to, it's a question I ask all the guests that we've, we've had here to reflect on optimism, right? Are you optimistic or not about the future of pluralism in our society right now? Wow. Optimism or pessimism? You could do short-term, long-term as well, you know? I used to say I'm not an optimist or a pessimist. I have either, I alternate between hope and despair. <laughs> yeah, I, I have to say there's a lot I'm optimistic about. I think the last 20 years, a number of things have happened, right? The, the Tea Party movement, the Occupy Wall Street movement, the rise of Trump, the rise of, for want of a better word, the resistance to me, all of these, I'm going to say all of them, although I'm going to get in trouble for that, I know, are positive events. They are the begrudging, halting, slow beginnings of a new political engagement. After 50 or so years of let me buy whatever I want to buy and let me watch as much Netflix as I want to watch or it wasn't Netflix at that time. It was, you know, walk down the street with my Walkman on my ears and tune out and whatever it is, right. Drop acid, tune out. Young people are back in it. And that gives me a lot of hope. I'm a, I'm a big fan of young people. I teach them every day. It's what I love to do. And I often fundamentally disagree with my students, trust me, but I love that they care. And I haven't seen students care this much in a long time. So to me, that is a optimistic 
aspect of, of what's going on. The pessimist in me worries that too often they care in a kind of ideological way and it's their way or the highway. That's totally, in my view, natural for youthful exuberance. And I think it would be shocking if that weren't the case. What they need to do is go into politics. And when they go into politics, they're going to be in the room with Nancy Pelosi and Mitch McConnell. And they're going to be in the room with AOC, but they're also going to figure out where the lowest common denominator is and where the highest common denominator is that we can get to. And the fact is they're going into politics. That's my optimism. I've had more students choose to go into politics in the last five years than in the last 20 years teaching combined before that. That to me is deeply optimistic. And I think that while I think that there's a lot of, you know, I think they, they need to learn some more. I think they're, they're often a little uh, ideological. I think that over time, them going into politics will mean a rebirth of politics in this country in a way that I can't predict how it will come out, but uh, I think is exciting and in the end, hopeful. All right. On that note, thank you very, very much, Professor Berkowitz, for taking the time to speak with us. We really appreciate it. It's my pleasure, Ben. Thanks very much. Thank you for listening to the Discourse Magazine podcast. You can subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, Google, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. And please feel free to share this podcast with like-minded friends and to leave us a review. We're always happy to hear from you. Finally, check out Discourse Magazine, which is available free online at www.discoursemagazine.com. Thanks again, and see you next time.